Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Starship Sofa, everybody. Welcome, hello and welcome to Oral Delights, show 135. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, everyone welcome to Starship Sofa. Fine morning, we have a bright sunshine morning and a fantastic show lined up for you. I'll jump straight in, tell you what we've got coming up today. We have Fact Article by Robin Bradshaw, Transcribers Project. Little update on that, it's getting very close now, so I'll let you hear what Robin has to say on that. And I'll jump in again after Robin, a little, little bit of my own. And we have a little musical excursion as well. Courtesy of Mr. David Bradshaw, husband of Robin Bradshaw. Do <laughs> look out for this. We have a promo by the Neutron Flow podcast. Main fiction comes from Paul J. McCauley. Then we have a different little fact article from J.J. Campanella, all to do with Doc Savage. I hope you'll stick around and listen to that. Then we have Starship Sofa's Interrogations, 15 Questions, put to Christine Catherine Rush. There you go, a fine show. First off then is Robin Bradshaw with her little transcribers article and there is something very very special at the end of it so and I'll see a little bit more about that as you listen to it. Robin, how's it going? Hi Tony, Robin Bradshaw here. Thanks so much for inviting me to submit a final report on behalf of the transcribers. Or, now that we have finished, perhaps we can call ourselves the transcriptionists, with thanks to Gil Terran for providing us the proper word. It's hard to believe how many months ago this project began. And I know that for many of us, it's been a, sometimes a whole lot of fun, and sometimes a daunting struggle. Some of us have even had to drop out of the project as life's obligations took us away. And it really was more work than any of us anticipated. With the notable exception of Gil Terran, who is a professional transcriptionist, none of us anticipated the challenges of transcribing Tony and Kieran's accents as they talked over each other, digressed, regressed, and generally got thoroughly carried away. Each episode needed to be transcribed and then painstakingly proofread, formatted, and fact-checked when we just couldn't quite tell what those yammering Geordies just said. I know my own two-hour episode about Samuel R. Delaney filled about 40 single-spaced typed pages, and I probably spent between 15 and 20 hours on making it just so. And then, of course, there was the time I spent communicating with other members of the team, orienting people when they joined, exchanging thoughts, or generally just cheerleading along the way. I would say that my experience is fairly similar to that of all nine members of the transcriber team. I won't lie, it's been a lot of work. 
But each of us found our own preferred method of getting the job done, with much emailing and Facebooking and Google Docs communicating and tweeting amongst ourselves for advice and support along the way. Uh, to be honest, that's been the best part. On the whole, we seem to have found the transcribing of the episodes a lot of fun. For those of us who are long-time listeners of Starship Sofa, there was definitely a lot of nostalgia value. For the relative newcomers who joined the project, they seem to have enjoyed seeing just how far the sofa has come, and appreciated the in-depth exploration of classic science fiction authors. That's what used to be the focus of the show. So, what have we created after all these months of toil? What will this book be, and who will read the thing anyway? Well, what we have are twelve classic Starship Sofa episodes, lovingly transcribed by devoted listeners of the show. It's going to be a real treasure for Starship Sofa fans, with much in the way of nostalgia value for the people who were listening in the early years. The old episodes contained a wealth of information about classic science fiction authors and subjects, which is sure to pique the interest of readers looking for their next book to explore. Though I wouldn't claim it could be used as a rigorous academic text by any means, as an informal oral work transcribed the way this one has been, there's sure to be some oddities that creep in. Oh well. Let's not forget that the layout will be done by D. Cuniff. My goodness, I think Starship Sofa Stories Volume One is just gorgeous, so I can't wait to see this one. I do happen to know D. has some fun material up his sleeves for us, so、uh, I know a lot of us are going to make room on our shelves for it. I can't wait to see it, D. And I do hope readers will enjoy this book for what is, to me, the most important reasons. That it will deliver a rich retrospective on the warmth, intelligence, humor, and welcoming community spirit that was the beginning of Starship Sofa. Our community has come a long way. We should be proud of where we have come from, as well as where we're going. The Starship Sofa is one inspiring voyage. So it's been a sprint to the finish over the last few weeks as we all frantically proofread our way to the deadline, and we made it, Tony. Sanity more or less intact. I want to give a big shout out to my transcriber brothers and sisters, the Skelly Rocker Craig Webster, Douglas Hill, Will Reese, Phil Ackerman, Steve Bickle, Gail Posey, Parash, and Giltaren, and those who could not continue to the finish, but whose willingness to give this crazy project a try in the first place—that's much appreciated anyway. And、uh, I give a big、uh, tip of the hat to you guys for coming out. Wish you could have stuck around, but really respect that life does get in the way. And I want to send a special hello to Diva Diane Severson, who realized quite quickly that newborns do not let mommy play with the computer. Thank you very much. But Diane stayed in touch with the team anyway, sharing warmth and humor and helping to keep the enthusiasm up. And Matthew Sanborn Smith, not sure exactly how you ended up on our email list, but thanks for waving the fan flag for us. It was great to hear from you. Last but not least, I want to thank Kieran O'Carroll, co-host of the original Starship Sofa, and Tony C. Smith, sofa captain, editor, and someone who I now call friend. We wouldn't have had to go through this pain in the arse at all if it weren't for you guys. And on that note, I'd like to present you, Tony, with a little gift. This is a little ditty that was written by the Skelly Rocker with some help from the transcriber team, and performed by David Bradshaw. We hope it warms your heart to know how much you've moved us all to work so hard for you and the sofa, and how we all feel deep, deep down inside. She can't take any more of this, Captain. <laughs> 
transcribing Typing out your words Every silly thing you said No matter how absurd But now my typing days are done And it's my turn tonight So shut it, you slack-jawed spouting jerk I'll give you an oral delight And Mr. Podcaster Oh, why can't you say it right? It only served to upset me when you speak a load of shade. I'm trying hard to understand just what you really mean. Was that fine and dandy, or I feel brandy, or something in between? Now there were times you made me laugh, and times you made me cry. Times when I could not understand and just wanted to die. It's not been very easy. Now that I'm all done, you can sort the bloody rest out yourself. I hope that you have fun. Hey, Mr. Podcaster, oh, why can't you say it right? It only served to upset me when you speak a load of shit. I'm trying hard to understand just what you really mean. Was that Alfred Fester or I addressed her or something in between? I, I don't know. What, what, what's that you're saying? There's proofing to be done? You're trying to tell me I'm not perfect? You, cheeky, little. If it's the proof you want, oh, you'll get it. But I'll need an alibi. Cause when this is all over, man, I'm gonna make you cry out. Hey, Mr. Podcaster, oh, why can't you say it right? It only serves to upset me when you speak a load of shit. I'm trying hard to understand That came through the post, or that came through the email, and, oh, Robin, David, actually that's recorded by Robin's husband, David Bradshaw, who's actually a professional musician as well, and I'll put a link on to David's site to, you know, go over there and say thank you, because that, honestly, just touched me so much. It was written by, as well, Skelly Rocker, who's one of the transcribers, who, I think, in a fit of madness, couldn't take it no more and just had to get it written down. Honestly, guys, that was amazing. Thank you so much. Robin, thank you so much. <laughs> you know, thank you. Those words are so shallow when it comes to what they, the transcribers have done. It is just an amazing thing. And you know what's really strange is when I was getting the kind of projects back, you know, every one of them went, you know, blood, sweat and tears went through it. <laughs> their own personal hell. You know, and I was getting these back. You didn't see, like you say, some of them. 20,000 words, you know, me and Kieran can kind of waffle on, you know what I mean, in like our own kind of almost language, you know, and I found it so difficult to kind of read these transcribes just because you read them and you're thinking, do I sound like that? Do I talk in a sentence like that? Because honestly, sometimes it is nearly 
well, it's not English. Do you know what I mean? We're kind of backwards and forwards and then interrupting. And I've just getting like a kind of, well, I've, I've getting now a big kind of look at what, you know, these transcriber projects guys have done. You know, and I've had like a little look, a little glimpse at what it's been like for everyone who's been on that transcriber project. <gasps> but the good news is, it's all now finished, or it's finished from one point of view. Now I'm just kind of getting those whole, I don't know how many thousands and thousands of words there, you know, getting it and just dumped it on <laughs> one email, one email, and it just turned Day's world into a nightmare. I attached all these little kind of transcribe, you know, all the kind of finished proofs, they've all been done now, and in one email, I sent the whole kit and caboodle over to Day. Do you know what I mean? Day, there you go. <laughs> It's literally a little email like that. And now Dee's world has just <laughs> it's just imploded in. And he's got a month, you know, to kind of get these together. And this is the kind of, the, hopefully the layout is it's going to come out, the book is going to come out sometime, you know, the first, maybe the second week in June. Whether that happens or not, do you know what I mean? It's, it's not certainly not kind of Dee's, you know, kind of, hiccups that'll get it there it's always like lulu do you know what i mean you're kind of it's so not complicated but it's such like a kind of weird structure you know you'll upload your book and then it takes you that long you know day's got to kind of set this out in a certain format you upload it and you realize that the postage for that format is ridiculous you know it's like a cheap book but then you've got like 20 quid postage costings so you'll just have to hopefully bear with us when it's all days all kind of getting it correlated. And the good thing is D sent over the artwork for it as well, which I'm just chuffed to bits with, you know what I mean? I kind of put my little two cents worth in there. It's going to have some planets in the background. So hopefully when it's all kind of done, you know, you will go out and treat yourselves to this book. You know, I haven't got a clue yet kind of about page numbers or anything like that. You know what I mean? We're still in a kind of little bit of an early stage. But now, you know, the goalposts are in sight, as we say. So please, you know, keep an eye out and I'll keep mentioning it from now on. Do you know what I mean? I keep badging until it comes out in June. So please, do look out for the Transcriber Project. I will tell you the title next week. Right, we have a promo next. From the Neutron Floor Podcast. Are you a fan of science fiction, fantasy, gaming, or comics? Then you should listen to the Neutron Flow Podcast, hosted by Charles Milhouse, Charles Davenport, and Rob Polak. News and reviews from three middle-aged geeks just out to have some fun. Join the Neutron Flow on iTunes and get your geek on. There you go. I'll put a link on to the Neutron Flow podcast. Do pop over and say hello. Say you come from Starship Sofa as well. That would be nice. So the main fiction. Well, the main fiction today comes from Paul A. Macaulay. Paul A. Macaulay, born 1955, a British botanist and award-winning author. A biologist by training, UK science fiction author Macaulay writes mostly hard science fiction, dealing with themes such as biotechnology, alternate history and space travel. Macaulay began with his far future space opera with 400 billion stars, its sequel, Eternal Light, and the planetary Connolly adventure of the fall. 
Macaulay also used biotechnology and nanotechnology in near-future settings Fairyland, described as a dystopian war-torn Europe where genetically engineered dolls are used for disposable slaves. Since 2001, he's produced several SF-based techno-thrillers such as The Secret Life, The Whole Wide World and White Devils. 400 Billion Stars was his first novel that won the Philip K. Dick Award in 1988. Fairyland won the 1996 Arthur C. Clarke Award. And in 1997, John W. Campbell Memorial Award for Best Science Fiction Novel. This story is narrated by Paul Kajiji over there at Process Diary. Paul is just a, a wealth of talent. Paul did the Tanith Lee artwork. He also is the voice of Cory Doctorow and a number of stories as well. So do pop over and say hello to Paul over at the Process Diary. Paul, thank you so much, sir. So the Starship Sova and her oral delights is very proud to present. A Brief Guide to Other Histories a short story that shares the same multiverse as Cowboy Angels and was first published in Postscripts, number 15. My platoon had been in the American Bunchie for two weeks before it suffered its first major incident. It was gruesome, and it robbed us of our innocence. But it was only the beginning of something stranger and deeper. We'd come through the Turing Gate at Brookhaven with the rest of the 3rd Brigade, 1st Armored Division, 2nd Battalion, as part of the ongoing operation to bring peace and reconciliation to that particular version of America's history. 17 PFCs and Spec 4s, and me, their commanding officer. We were all kids. I was the oldest, and I'd just turned 24. Most of us hadn't been through the mirror before, and it put the zap on our heads. This was America, but it wasn't... Our version of America. New York, but not our version of New York. There were buildings I recognized from my visits to the city back in the real. The Chrysler Building, the Empire State, St. Patrick's Cathedral. Yellow taxis jostled on the streets, manholes vented plumes of steam, and Central Park was right where it should have been. Although it had been stripped of trees by people desperate for firewood in the last days of the war and there was a refugee camp sprawled across Sheep Meadow. But although the Statue of Liberty stood out in the Hudson, she was holding up a sword instead of a torch. The sword was a hundred feet long, and forged out of stainless steel that shone like a cold flame. The skyline was different, too. Lower. Instead of glass and steel skyscrapers, Brutal chunks of marble and white stone hunched like giant toads. Monumental railroad stations, government buildings and palaces. Some were burned out or shattered by bombs. The rest were holed by artillery shells and pockmarked by small arms fire. We'd been given orientation lectures and issued with copies of a pamphlet that explained that the different versions of history accessed by the Turing Gates were every bit as real and valid as our own history. That their people were real people, American citizens just like us. Even so, driving around a city where familiar buildings mixed with alien intruders, half the traffic was military, and pedestrians were dressed in drab antique styles, was like inhabiting a dream, or like taking the lead role in a movie when you had no idea of the script or plot. The American Bun Chief 
shared most of our history, but it had taken a different turn in the 1930s when a bunch of generals and tycoons who didn't like where their country seemed to be heading under the New Deal had assassinated Franklin D. Roosevelt and installed a military government. One of the generals turned out to be more ruthless than the rest. After the coup, he seized the power by a ruthless program of murder and arrest, made himself president for life, and established a tyranny that had lasted more than 30 years. Towards the end of his rule, he'd become insane. He'd styled himself the dear leader, ordered the construction of hundreds of grandiose monuments to himself, put millions in prison or in work camps, massacred millions more. He'd been about to go to war against Europe when, in 1972, scientists in our version of history had opened the Turing Gate onto his version of history. The Central Intelligence Group had sent through agents who'd made contact with rebels and supplied them with weapons and intel. As soon as civil war had kicked off, two divisions drove through the mirror, quickly took control of the eastern seaboard, captured the dear leader as he tried to flee to Argentina, and pushed over what turned out to be a regime hollowed by corruption and self-interest. When my platoon and the rest of the 3rd Brigade came through the mirror a year later, dead-enders who refused to accept that the war was over were waging a guerrilla campaign up and down the country. They used car bombs and landmines, improvised explosive devices from fertilizer, fuel oil, and scrap metal, and detonated them when convoys drove past. They fired mortars into our bases. They shot at us with sniper rifles or rocket-propelled grenades from vantage points in buildings, or took pot shots at us and melted into panicked crowds. As in any insurrection, it was almost impossible to tell the good guys from the bad guys, and that was why one of my men ended up killing three innocent civilians. We had been ordered to set up a traffic control point on the west side, ten blocks south of the green zone. Two APCs backed up by a Martindale-like tank, razor wire coiled across the street, the men waving vehicles forward one by one, doing stops and checks. The traffic was bunched up and jumpy, simmering in hundred-degree heat so humid you could have wrung water out of the air, and we were all jumpy too. At any moment, someone could pop a trunk and find weapons, or a primed car bomb, or some screwed-up munchkin could decide to take a shot at us just for the hell of it. So when a taxi lurched forward after it was directed to an inspection point, accelerating crazily, scattering men, Bobby Sturgis behind the 50 caliber machine gun on top of one of the APCs made a split-second decision and put 200 rounds into the taxi in less than a minute, punching holes in the hood, exploding the tires, shattering the windshield, shredding the driver and his two passengers, a man and his 70-year-old mother. Sudden silence as the taxi rolled to a stop, engine dead, blood leaking from its door sills, blood and human meat spattered all over the interior. That evening, Tommy McAfee said, If these fucking munchkins learned to drive, this shit wouldn't happen. Munchkins, that's what we call the locals. New York City, the American Bun Chief's version of New York City, was Oz. The green zone in Oz built up around a palace that before the revolution had been owned by one of the dear leader's sons, that was the Emerald City. Like many of the men, 
Tommy McAfee had trouble accepting that the people on this side of the mirror were as real as the people back home. Couldn't believe that Americans could have brought themselves so low. He treated them with rough contempt, made endless jokes about them. He had a quick, sharp wit, knew how to time a punchline and cap someone else's joke with a zinger of his own. Was gaining a solid reputation as the platoon's joker. So when he made his quip, he was surprised and upset when Ernie Wright told him to can it, and the rest of the men either made murmurs of agreement or looked away. They were all lounging around by the side of the entrance that curved down to the underground garage, where the dear leader's eldest son had once stored his limousines, sports cars, and motorcycles, where we now parked our APCs and jeeps. We ate and slept in what had been the servants' quarters nearby, and had set up a barbecue pit outside. Folding chairs, a basketball hoop, a table tennis set liberated from somewhere in the palace. Tommy McAfee was sitting on a case of oil cans, a rangy kid with rusty hair, cropped short, a tattoo of a boxing leprechaun on his right bicep, looking at Ernie Wright and saying, Jesus, you think I was the one who shot that fucking taxi to death? Ernie Wright was the biggest man in the platoon, but he could move quickly. He stepped up to Tommy McAfee and grabbed the front of his fatigues and pulled him to his feet in a single fluid motion and asked him, their faces inches apart, Any more smart remarks about what went down? I can't think of any. Wright set McAfee down and patted him on the shoulder. But that wasn't the end of it. Later on that evening, they got into a fistfight. It was supposedly over who should have the last stake, but it was really about McAfee trying to regain some face after Wright had shamed him. McAfee could box, but Wright was stronger and heavier, and after some sparring, he knocked McAfee on his ass with a solid punch. McAfee got up and came back at Wright, but was knocked down again, and this time he stayed down. Sprawled flat on his back on the floodlit concrete under the basketball hoop, breathing hard, his nose and mouth bloody, one eye swelled shut. After a while, he got up and went to the ice chest and washed his face with a handful of ice chips. I didn't think much of it at the time. We'd all been on edge after the shooting, and the fistfight seemed to have dissipated much of the tension. And besides, I was more concerned about Bobby Sturgis. He was a gentle kid, barely 18, sick to his soul over what he'd done. When I told him that he wouldn't get any blame when I wrote up the incident, that I accepted full responsibility because it happened under my command, he'd given me a haunted look and said, doesn't make it right, Lieutenant. They're Americans, just like us. Americans shouldn't be killing Americans. I agree. But some of them are trying to kill us, which is why you did the right thing. Maybe it was the right thing to do, Bobby Sturgis said, but that doesn't make it right. I put in a request to pull him off the line for a few days R&R, but it was kicked back immediately. There was sand in the gears of the mission. We couldn't spare any men. I took him off the 50 cal, but he had to ride out with us on patrol the next day, and the day after that. We manned checkpoints. We escorted convoys of supplies to hospitals and aid stations. We escorted a convoy of construction material to a power station that had been badly damaged during the war. Jackhammers were pounding all over the city. Cranes were swinging to and fro, and scaffolding was springing up like kudzu as the Mutchkins patched and repaired and rebuilt 
as if tearing down one movie set and erecting another in its place. I noticed that Ernie Wright did his best to keep behind Tommy McAfee during foot patrols, and guessed what he was thinking. Tommy McAfee might want to even things out after his beating. We were all carrying guns, and it wasn't unknown for a soldier with a beef to put a round or two into their rival's back in the middle of a firefight. But Tommy McAfee seemed to have forgotten the incident, and although the Dead Enders were staging hit-and-run raids in Texas and parts of the Midwest, and Washington, D.C. was paralyzed by a spate of car bombings, New York was pretty quiet. It was August, hot and sunny. I remember one day we were parked up near a playground, and Dave Brahma and Leroy Moss started handing out candy bars and cans of soft drink to the kids. Two men in flak jackets and helmets, M-16 slung over their shoulders, up to their waists in a crowd of happy children. Another time, Todd Cooper was checking IDs at a control point, and a man started shaking his hand and wouldn't let go. This old man in a dusty suit and battered fedora, pumping Todd Cooper's hand and thanking him for being there, tears rolling down his cheeks. Then a supply convoy running the expressway from Brookhaven into New York City was hit by a massive improvised explosive device buried at the side of the highway. Five died instantly. Six were badly wounded. That night, my platoon took part in a raid on an apartment building in Brooklyn. According to an informer, the dead-enders who had planted the IED were storing weapons and explosives there. It kicked off at two in the morning. A PSYOPs vehicle blasted out a message telling everyone to leave their doors open and wait with their hands on their heads for questioning. Two Cherokee helicopters beat above the building's flat roof, lighting up the front with searchlights. A squad of explosive specialists hit the basement first, and then everyone else went in. My platoon had been assigned the top two floors. I was determined to do things by the book. I told the men to knock first and break down doors only if they had to, to keep their fingers off the trigger and treat everyone with respect. Even so, it was a pretty brutal business. We'd storm in, grab the man on the house and throw him down, pacify the rest of the family, and interrogate the man in front of them, ask him if he owned a weapon or had any insurgent propaganda, if he was involved in insurgent activity in any way. Then we'd rip up the place, pulling out drawers and tossing the contents, ripping through closets, looking through anything that could be used as a weapon. The people were mostly passive, but we'd been told to expect trouble, and we had no idea what we might find or if the situation might suddenly turn ugly. Despite my orders, there was quite a bit of roughhousing and horseplay to relieve the tension, shouts and screams, the smash of glass and crockery. A frat house party with half the participants armed to the teeth and the possibility of sudden death hanging in the air. I was going from apartment to apartment, trying to curb the excesses, when Ted Brahma came up and told me that something weird was going down, smiling his gentle stone smile, saying, You have to see this, Lieutenant. It'll blow your mind. Truly. I followed him downstairs to a single-room apartment with bookshelves along one wall, posters above the couch, books in piles on the floor. It was very hot. A standard lamp had been knocked over and threw huge shadows everywhere. 
Searchlights pried through the blinds at the window. The whippy flutter of the helicopters matched my racing heartbeat. Todd Cooper and Tommy McAfee stood behind a man kneeling on the bare boards with his wrists plastic-huffed. Ernie Wright stood in front of him, studying an ID card. Tell me what you think, Lieutenant, Tommy McAfee said and jerked up the prisoner's head by his hair. Is he on the list? Take a real good look, Tommy McAfee said. Both he and Todd Cooper were lit up, grinning. His eyes, the color of his hair. You don't see it? Show the lieutenant the ID, Todd Cooper said. Ernie Wright handed the card to me. He had a baffled, dazed expression, as if he'd run full tilt into an invisible wall. You see it, Tommy McAfee said as I studied it. You see it now? The name under the black and white photo card was Ernest C. Wright. Tommy McAfee's grin widened when he saw my reaction. I reckon we found ourselves Ernie's double. Bullshit, Ernie Wright said. He's nothing like me. He doesn't even have the same date of birth. Oh, yeah. And how come he just told us he was born in the same dipshit town as you? His parents are the same names as your parents. He is your name. And he has your eyes, too. Tommy McAfee said, jerking the prisoner's head up again. It was true. The prisoner's eyes were the same sharp blue as Ernie Wright's, and his hair was the same dirty blonde. But otherwise, he didn't look much like Ernie Wright at all. He was shy about 50 pounds. His face was leaner and paler, and he had a mustache. He's your doppelganger, dude, Ted Brahma said. Your dark half. I asked if they found any explosives or weapons. There isn't anything to find, Ernie Wright said. Ain't that sweet, McAfee said. Ernie is in love, in love with his own self. Brahma asked the prisoner why he had all these books. I'm a teaching assistant at Brooklyn University, the man said. His voice was lighter than Ernie Wright's. Yeah, what do you teach, McAfee said. American literature. Ernie Wright shook his head. If you're a teacher, I guess you're a party member, McAfee said, grinning at me. This guy is guilty of something, Lieutenant. I can smell it. There were 50 million party members, the man said, including everyone who worked at every university in high school. It, it was the law. All these books, McAfee said. I bet we could find something subversive. What do you say, Lieutenant? Shall we take him in? I thought this was more about the beef Tommy McAfee had with Ernie Wright than about uncovering a potential suspect. I pulled my knife cut the plastic cuffs that bound the man's wrists, and looked straight into McAfee's grin and asked him if he had a problem. No one said anything. The man knelt on the floor, rubbing his wrists, carefully not making eye contact with anyone. Move on, I said. Everyone. Right now. Ernie Wright was staring at the man. Then he shuddered all over, like a man waking in the middle of a dream, and marched straight out. The fallen lamp wheeled his shadow over the bookcase and ceiling. As McAfee, Cooper, and Brahma trooped after him, I remember that I was still holding the man's ID card. Sorry, I said, and dropped the card in front of him and bolted from the apartment, thoroughly spooked by the situation. The men ragged Ernie Wright about his alleged double or doppelganger on the ride back to Emerald City. Most of it was good nature, but he turtled up, 
hunched in the back of the APC in a glowering silence that he broke only once, when Tommy McAfee told him that something must have gone badly wrong with his life, seeing as he'd ended up in the shit while his doppelganger had a good job, an education. That's the point, Ernie Wright said. That guy, he isn't anything like me. So can you shit, McAfee? It ain't right. It ain't even funny. After a silence, Ted Brahma said in his doper's drawl, Know what they say about your doppelganger? That it's just like you in every way, but it doesn't have a soul. And it knows that and wants one real bad. So if you ever meet it, it's like meeting a vampire, hungry for, like, your exact blood type. One look, it can suck the soul right out of you. Turn you into what it was, make itself into you. There is something to that, Leroy Moss said. He was at the wheel of the APC, inclining his head so the men in the back could hear him over the roar of the engine. Everyone agrees there can be no miraculous multiplication of souls. If there are two people the same, one in the real, one in some other history, there can be but the one soul. And you can't divide a soul either. So only one person can be in possession of it. You ask me, all the munchkins lack souls, Todd Cooper said. They're all ghosts. It was a common belief. The munchkins were spooks. Unreal. And because they were unreal, it didn't matter what you did to them. That's what doppelganger means, Ted Brahma said. It's German. For ghost double. They say it's okay to fuck your doppelganger, Todd Cooper said. Really? It's like jacking off, only... You know, double the fun. <laughs> yeah, but the only problem is you have to waste him right afterward, Tommy McAfee said. Otherwise, he'll waste you. Most of the men laughed. Ted Brahma said, Must have been pretty intense, Ernie. Meeting your own ghost back there. Ernie Wright didn't reply. I turned around and told the men to knock it off. But Tommy McAfee had to have the last word. The big question is, which is the ghost... And which is the man? You think about that, Ernie. A couple of days later, I saw Ernie Wright sitting on one of the plastic chairs in the R&R area, bare-chested in shorts and sandals, reading the pamphlet we'd all been given coming through the mirror, a brief guide to other histories. I asked him how he was doing, and he said he was doing fine. Pretty interesting reading you have there, he shrugged. You read it carefully. It'll explain why the guy isn't really a double. I know. Ernie Wright said. I knew it when I saw he was three years younger than me. As I understand it, if he was born after the history of this sheaf split from the history of the real, he has to be a completely different person, I said. Because all his experiences are different from yours. I'd been reading a brief guide to other histories, too, after that night. That's pretty much what it says here, Ernie Wright said. He was holding the pamphlet in one hand, his forefinger marking its place. You are what you do and what's done to you. The sum of all your experiences. Him and me, we'd had such different lives. We aren't even like brothers. That's how I understand it, I said. Still, he said, I guess we had the same mother and father. I didn't understand the significance of that remark then. It was hardly my fault. I had trouble remembering the names of all the men in my platoon let alone the details of their lives before they'd joined up or been drafted. And even though I could hardly have been expected 
to remember that Ernie Wright's mother had died in childbirth when he was just two years old. He'd been brought up by my father, who was a bitter and violent drunk. I still feel guilty about what happened. I still have the irrational idea that I should have known about Ernie Wright's unhappy childhood and that I should have done something to prevent what happened next instead of making some inane remark about being pleased to see that he was putting the encounter into perspective. It was weird, he said, but weird shit happens through the mirror. We just have to deal with it. Glad to hear it. And after that, Ernie Wright did seem to be dealing with it. I overheard him having an earnest conversation with Leroy Moss, who carried a copy of the Bible in his breast pocket of his flat jacket, about the nature of souls and their indivisibility. He shrugged off Tommy McAfee's jibes. And then, two weeks later, the platoon was given a day of R&R, and he disappeared. I didn't find out what happened until the next day, when the military police took charge of Ernest Wright, the man Tommy McAfee had claimed to be Ernest Wright's doppelganger. It seemed that Ernie had changed into civilian clothes, hitched a ride out of Emerald City in a contractor's truck, and turned up at Ernest's apartment later that evening, drunk but lucid, saying he wanted a quiet word, offering cigarettes and a bottle of four roses. A gift, he said, for the trouble a couple of weeks back. Ernest had deep misgivings, and he also felt sorry for Ernie, who seemed sad and bewildered and lost. And he was curious, too. So he invited Ernie in and made coffee, and they got to talking. They shared the same parents, but Ernie's had met several years before Ernest's had. Ernie's mother had died giving birth to a stillborn baby when he was two. His father had become a serious drunk, and Ernie had joined the army to get away from the son of a bitch who had died three years ago when his liver had finally given out on him. I don't miss him, Ernie said. Not one bit. Ernest's father, the American Buns version of Ernie's father, had died in a traffic accident when Ernest was less than a year old. A couple of years later, his mother had remarried to another teacher in the high school where she worked. That's how you got to be a college professor, huh? There were always books in the house. They talked about the town where they had been born, the little house where Ernie had lived with his father until he joined the army. Ernest and his mother had moved out when he was three. He didn't remember much about it. I think there was a cherry tree in the front yard, he said. Ernie smiled. It was still there the last time I looked. Same tree, different lives. Two different trees, really, Ernest said. He told Ernie how he'd won a scholarship and come to New York to teach and study literature. Ernie told him a little bit about his so-called career in the army, fighting in a sheaf wrecked by nuclear war and now policing the streets of New York. I never really knew my mom, he said. And my dad was a mean drunk who beat me till I got big enough to beat him. But you, you had a real family. You have a college degree. All, all those books. If you knew what it was like growing up here under the thumb of the dear leader and his psychopathic sons and his secret police, you might not think it was so great, Ernest said. He'd been tense and nervous all through their conversation, growing more and more resentful about the intrusion. Look, it was nice to talk to you. Strange, but nice. But I have to go to work tomorrow. Me too. Out on the streets. 
Hey, I was just wondering, Ernie said with a ponderous casualness, about your mother. Is she still alive? That was why he'd come there, of course. It wasn't anything to do with Ernest, who was, at best, the brother he'd never known. No, Ernie Wright was chasing the ghost of his long-dead mother. He looked for a long time at the snapshot Ernest reluctantly gave him, asking if she was still alive there, in their hometown. Maybe he could look her up sometime, he said, and grew agitated after Ernest said that he didn't think that this was such a good idea. Ernie blustered, said that he barely remembered his mother. All he wanted was to see how she had turned out. What was the harm? Sharp words were exchanged. Ernie started to paw through the papers on the table Ernest used as a desk, drew his pistol when Ernest asked him to stop. Ernest panicked, threw coffee in Ernie's face, and the pistol went off. The shot barely missed Ernest. There was a struggle, another shot. That one hit Ernie in the thigh, nicking his femoral artery. There was a lot of blood. Ernest went to the apartment next door, which had a phone, and called an ambulance, but it took two hours to arrive because there were roadblocks everywhere. Despite the best efforts of Ernest and his neighbors, Ernie Wright bled to death on Ernest Wright's old Persian carpet. Ernest Wright told me all of this in a bleak interrogation room in Camp X-Ray, the holding facility for suspects in bombings or shootings, people caught trafficking weapons and explosives, curfew violators, and anyone else who had gotten into some kind of trouble with the occupying army. He'd been arrested on suspicion of murder by the local police, but they'd handed him over to us after they had discovered that the dead man in his apartment was a soldier. My commanding officer had advised me not to visit him, but it had happened on my watch and I felt responsible. I wanted to know what had happened so that I could figure out what I had done wrong. Also, I had read the transcript of Ernest Wright's interrogations. I had talked to the local police who had handled the case, and I was convinced he was innocent. When I told him this, he thanked me for my concern and for my offer to give supporting testimony should his case come to trial. He told me the story while smoking several of the cigarettes I had brought, and at the end lit a fresh one and said, There's a writer who described time as a garden of forking pads. Whenever someone makes a decision, it doesn't matter how small, it, it splits time into two. So there's this time, here and now, and another time when you decide not to help me. I told him that I was familiar with the concept. By this time, I had read a brief guide to other histories several times from cover to cover, trying to find something that would help me understand what was happening, trying to find something that would help me understand what had happened. An infinite series of paths, some divergent, some convergent, some running in parallel, Ernest Wright said. Until a year ago, I thought it was just a story a philosophical conceit. But then, your people made themselves known when the revolution started. You sent troops through the Turing gates and helped defeat the dear leader. You told us that their agents had been visiting our history secretly before that, helping us set up the revolution. You told us that you wanted to help us build a better America. But what you're really doing is shaping us in your image. We really do want to help you.
Your path is only one of an infinite number of paths, and no one path can claim to be better or more privileged than any other. All are equal. Except we hit the Turin gates, I said. Which gives your history the ability to interfere with other histories, other Americas. But it doesn't give your history moral superiority. You brought us freedom, democracy, fine. We're grateful for it, but we're not beholden. We have the right to make from that freedom what we will, whether you approve of it or not. If we're forced to become nothing more than a pale imitation of your version of America, <laughs> what kind of freedom is that? I told him that he sounded a little like the Dead Enders, and he shook his head. He was thinner than I remembered. But because his head had been shaved, and he had lost his mustache, it seemed to me that he looked a lot more like Ernie right now or my memory of Ernie. The dead-enders believe they can restore the Bund if they can push you back through the mirror. We want to restore democracy, but on our terms. It's like your friend. He didn't really understand that we were two completely different people. Strangers. My mother was not his mother, Ernest Wright said. And this is not your history. That was in 1974. I was 24 back then. So innocent, so foolishly hopeful. Now, just turned 30, I'm a published writer with five short stories and a novel under my belt. I've already used parts of this story in the novel, although, in my version, Ernie Wright doesn't end up bleeding out on the floor of Ernest Wright's apartment, shot by his own pistol. Instead, he finds out where Ernest Wright's parents are living and goes AWOL, and hitches back to the American Buns, virgin of his hometown. He spends a day watching Ernest Wright's mother, trying and failing to get up the courage to talk to her, finally realizing that he has nothing to say to her because she isn't in any way like his mother. That nothing in Ernest Wright's life could explain what had gone wrong in his own. Although this version worked well enough within the frame of the novel, Although it was true to Ernie Wright's need to understand and reach a reconciliation with his own history, although it clarified real events and gave them a neat ending, it was a contrivance. I was never satisfied with it, and felt guilty, too, at the way I'd trivialized Ernest Wright, used him as a bit player, a ghostly reflection whose only function was to give Ernie Wright the information he needed to make his pilgrimage. This is as close to the truth as I can make it, and there is no neat ending, no bittersweet resolution. Ernest Wright was released back to the local authorities after two months in Camp X-Ray. He didn't make bail and was stabbed to death in a prison riot just before his case came to trial. Todd Cooper was killed in a firefight a couple of months later, and Dave Brahma was badly wounded. The same day, Bobby Sturgis injected his foot with a serret of morphine and shot off his big toe, a million-dollar wound that was his ticket back to the reel. I wrote it up as an accident. The kid had never gotten over shooting up that car. Then Leroy Moss was killed when a rocket-propelled grenade hit his APC. I was sitting next to him and spent two months in hospital while doctors worked to save my leg, and shrapnel some of it bone fragments from Leroy Moss, surfaced in different parts of my body. Some of it is still there. Tommy McAfee re-upped 
served another year, and survived without a scratch. After my novel was published, he phoned me later one night. He was drunk and wanted to talk about old times. He told me he had a bunch of stories I could help him make into a book as good as mine. I listened to him ramble on for a while, letting him vent whatever it was my novel had stirred up, making the right kind of noises, and when he finally hung up, I realized that he'd hit on something useful, and started making notes for this story. We are what we do, and what's done to us. If a brief guide to other histories was right about one thing, it's this. And because what happens to us in war is more intense than ordinary life, it marks us more deeply, changes us more profoundly. Every soldier who comes back from war is haunted by the ghosts of the comrades who didn't make it, the people he killed or saw killed, by the things he did and the things he should have done. And most of all, by the innocent kid he once was before the contingencies and the experiences of war took that innocence away. I have summoned up my ghosts here and tried to lay them to rest. But it seems to me, now that all of us who pass through the mirror into different histories have become like ghosts, lost in the infinite possibilities of our stories, ceaselessly searching for an ideal we can never reach. There you go, don't forget copyright is Paul J. McCauley. And thank you so much, Paul, for fantastic narration. Next up, we have a little fact article by J.J. Campanella. Jim, sir, what you got to tell us today? Greetings and salutations, everyone. This is Jim Campanella. I'm going to be talking a bit about something which is not quite in the realm of science news tonight. For those of you who don't know, I have my own podcast on the website uvulaaudio.com. That's U-V-U-L-A audio.com. My podcast is a bookcast, actually, and we have presented a whole series of different types of books in the last three years since we've been podcasting, from H.P. Uh, Lovecraft Horror to Jack London's Call of the Wild and P.G. Wodehouse's Jeeves novels. Even my own SF audio novel, The Standards of Creation, is available there. All the stories are free for subscription and or download. After the Lovecraft stories, probably the most popular podcast is the book The Man of Bronze, which is the first Doc Savage novel written by Lester Dent about 76 years ago. For those of you who are a bit younger than me, you may wonder who is Doc Savage, and for that matter, who is Lester Dent. I'm here to tell you a bit about him and the genre of pulp fiction from which Doc arose. Now, I am not old enough to have seen the original printing of Doc back in the 1930s, but I was around for his rebirth in bantam paperbacks in the 1970s. When I was a kid back in the 70s, I was obsessed with Doc Savage. I am still so obsessed that I am doing podcasts of his books. I also think that Doc and Lester Dent are primarily responsible for me becoming a scientist, I was that inspired by these stories that predated my birth by decades. The character of Clark Savage Jr., Doc Savage, was introduced by the pulp fiction author Lester Dent, writing under the publishing house name Kenneth Robeson in March of 1933 in The Man of Bronze, which ran as a serial in the Doc Savage magazine. The serial ran until 1948 and finished with 181 stories. 
The first 95 of these were reprinted between the 1960s until the early 90s by Bantam Books. All 181 stories were reprinted in omnibus form in 13 volumes in the late 90s, and the books are now all out of print. Doc was the epic precursor of Superman, Tarzan, James Bond, Buckaroo Banzai, Batman, Indiana Jones, and most superheroes that you can imagine. He was a giant in terms of his strength, speed, and agility, which no man could match. Beyond that, he was a genius who surpassed experts across the world in every mental endeavor. He was a surgeon with doctorates in archaeology, engineering, electronics, chemistry, biology, psychology, linguistics, even law. With his band of friends, he roamed the world, righting wrongs like a modern-day knight-errant. He never carried a gun, but he had more gadgets than Q supplied to Bond in all of Ian Fleming's books combined. He even had a code of honor that forbade him to kill unless he was left with absolutely no resort. And not only that, but he had a fortress of solitude, whose idea was used as an homage in later years by the authors of the Superman yarns. We'll get back to the Fortress of Solitude later. But in short, he was a hero that every boy dreamt of being, both physically powerful and immensely wise. Almost from birth, a team of scientists assembled by Clark Savage Sr., Doc's father, trained his mind and body to near superhuman abilities, giving him great strength and endurance, a photographic memory, mastery of the martial arts, and vast knowledge of the sciences. Doc was also a master of disguise and an excellent imitator of voices, though he admits to having trouble with women's voices. He righted wrongs and punished evildoers. Dent described the hero as having a mix of Sherlock Holmes's deductive abilities, Tarzan's outstanding physical abilities, Craig Kennedy's scientific education, and Abraham Lincoln's goodness. Doc could literally be stripped naked and held at gunpoint, as he was in several books, and he would still be the most dangerous man alive to any wrongdoer. When all his hidden gadgets failed, he could think his way out of almost every situation. Dent described Doc as manifesting Christliness. Doc's character and worldview is displayed in his oath, which goes as follows. Let me strive every moment of my life to make myself better and better to the best of my ability that all may profit by it. Let me think of the right and lend all my assistance to those who need it, with no regard for anything but justice. Let me take what comes with a smile, without loss of courage. Let me be considerate of my country, of my fellow citizens, and my associates in everything I say and do. Let me do right to all, and wrong no man. His office was on the 86th floor of the Empire State Building, and reached by Doc's private high-speed elevator, Doc owned a fleet of cars, trucks, aircraft, boats, which he stored in a secret hangar on the Hudson River under the name the Hidalgo Trading Company. And this was reached from his office by a pneumatic tube system called the Flea Run, which went all the way from the Empire State Building down to the Hudson River. Doc was never alone in his adventures. Like Buckaroo Banzai, whose story borrowed heavily from dense writing, presumably as an homage, Doc was surrounded by a crew of five adventurers and aides who were experts in their field. First, 
ape-like chemist, Lieutenant Colonel Andrew Blodgett Monk Mayfair, and his pig, habeas corpus. Second, clothes dandy lawyer, Brigadier General Theodore Marley Ham Brooks. Third, construction engineer, Colonel John Rennie Renwick. Rennie had fists like buckets of gristle and bone, and no wooden door could withstand them. Fourth, electrical engineer, Major Thomas J. Long Tom Roberts. Long Tom got his nickname from an incident with a World War I cannon of that name. Long Tom was a sickly-looking character, but he fought like a wildcat. Finally, archaeologist and geologist William Harper Johnny Littlejohn. Johnny used long words like, I'll be super amalgamated. Johnny also wore a monocle in his early adventures, one I had been blinded in World War I. Doc later performed corrective surgery on the eye. Lester Dent lived almost as amazing a life as Doc's. Dent, 1904 to 1959, was born in La Plata, Missouri. As an adult, he was an imposing physical specimen at six foot two and over 200 pounds. He cut a dashing figure and lived a vigorous, exciting, globe-trotting life, just as adventurous as the characters he was famous for creating. He often sported a mustache and sometimes a beard. Dent did an amazing number of things in his life, often mastering something fully and then dropping it completely. Like Doc, Dent possessed vast and arcane knowledge and was a master of assorted technical skills. He was a pilot, electrician, radio operator, plumber, architect. And like Doc Savage, Lester Dent loved exploring deserts, sailing tropical waters, and diving for sunken treasure. In fact, for three years, he sailed the Caribbean on his yacht Albatross, diving for treasure by day and sitting on the deck writing Doc Savage novels at night. Unlike many pulp writers, he actually did visit many of the places he wrote about. And it becomes very clear from his writing when those locales become so vibrant in the reader's mind. Among other things, Dent was also a gadgeteer, and throughout his life he worked with and tried innovations in most forms of technology, from telegraph, radio, television, to cameras, films, planes, electricity. Dent had the creativity to churn out inventions by the ton, but also the technical savvy to make them credible and probable, if not functional, in his writing. Author Philip Jose Farmer said of Dent that, Quote, as a prognosticator, Dent's record beat out that of Jules Verne, unquote. The list of gadgets that first appeared in print in the Doc Savage stories and finally came into existence many years later is a very long one. So to get on with the self-promotion that this segment is meant to be, thank you, Tony, we are starting a major new book cast at Uvula. I have no idea when Tony is actually... Uh, podcasting this segment, so I suspect that we have probably already started our new podcast. We are producing the narration of two Doc Savage novels back-to-back, The Fortress of Solitude and The Devil Genghis. Back in October of 1938, Lester Dent finally bowed to pressure from his fans and publishers and decided to reveal Doc's major secret, the exact nature of his Fortress of Solitude. 
Of course, in doing so, Dent realized that he would have to create a legendary villain that would become the only rogue ever to escape from Doc and come back in a sequel. That villain was John Sunlight. You have to admit, even his name is seriously cool. And since he is so completely black of heart, the Sunlight name is a bit of an ironic joke that characterizes the very, very great darkness of a very, very bad guy. Hitler was not quite an internationally insane figure on the scene yet in 1938, so it is interesting that according to writer Will Murray, Johnny Sunlight was modeled on another power-hungry nutcase, Napoleon Bonaparte. As Murray says, on the European stage, Napoleon's legacy of conquest still held the distinction for the most bloodthirsty, even until the late 30s. Dent originally in his notes made Sunlight tall and gaunt like Rasputin, but when Fortress was actually published, Sunlight was described with a high forehead and burning, deep-socketed eyes, and that is the way that Napoleon was often described. Sunlight is further described as a malevolent monster who desired nothing more than to bend mankind to his wicked will. Actually, throughout both novels, Sunlight has a weird, funhouse kind of kinship to Doc. He is a mental genius. He is far stronger than most men. He is completely emotionless, except for his bestial growls. He dislikes killing, preferring just to dominate his victims. Doc is bronzed and Sunlight pale. Doc trills unconsciously in thought and sunlight growls. Doc's strength comes from his developed physique, and sunlight's from his evil mind. Doc wears single-color conservative suits and sunlight exotic costumes of single colors. Doc was a superb balance between mind and body. Sunlight was all mind and completely out of balance. Doc wanted to right wrongs and bring peace. Sunlight insisted he wanted to bring peace as well and, quote, be the world's greatest benefactor, unquote, as well, but as a function of his dominating the world to get it. He literally wanted to wipe out war by force. He actually says at one point to Doc, We have the same aim in life, you and I. You strive to right wrongs, and I, I am trying to right the greatest wrong of all. Sound interesting? Well... I hope I've whet your appetite to hear our podcast. It's scheduled to start May 7th and will be available on the Uvula Audio website. You can do the search for us, but I'm sure that Tony will throw up his usual link for me. Enjoy, and I'll be back with my science report later this month. Thanks very much. There you go. Do pop over to JJ Campanella's site. Again, link on. Well worth it. Thank you, Jim. <laughs> Next up, Starship Sova's Interrogations, Christine Catherine Rush. I'll give you a little heads up for Christine Catherine Rush. She is award-winning mystery romance, science fiction and fantasy author. She has written many novels under various names, including Christine Grayson for romance and Chris Nelscott for mystery. Her novels have made the bestseller list worldwide and been published in 14 countries and 13 different languages. Where I got to know Christine Catherine Rush was from 
the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. This is where she edited it. And this is actually, I was, when I kind of spoke to Christine, this is when I kind of cut my teeth on who this writer was and, you know, what she kind of did. And, like I say, some of her stories are just amazing. Her new short story collection, Recovering Apollo and Other Stories, is out now from Golden Griffin. And in spring 2011, she will publish City of Ruins, the next book in the diving universe. I'll put a link on to Christine Catherine Rush's site. Do pop over there and say hello. Christine Catherine Rush, are you a science fiction writer? For my sins, I am. Tell me about your childhood. Well, it was, um, it was both good and bad. Um, I had both great parents and, al- and bad parents. They were alcoholics, but my father was a college professor, and I grew up in a middle-class home, and they provided me with a good life and a lot of confidence in myself, you know, at the same time as having all the other issues that go along with having, you know, alcoholic parents, but they were functional. And I grew up in a house that had a lot of readers. Uh, my siblings are all 20 years older than I am, roughly. So I grew up in a house with five adults. And um, I think that spurred me on to becoming a writer because they spent all their time reading. So the only way I could get their attention was to write something. How did you get started in science fiction genre? I love science fiction. I've always loved science fiction. Um, Sometimes I say that I got started in knowing what the genre... There are like a couple of phases where I got started knowing what the genre is. Genres didn't make sense to me. I didn't really know what a genre was until I was in college. And Kevin J. Anderson, who wrote the Dune books with Brian Herbert, um, explained it to me. We went to college together. Um, But, you know, before that, there were a couple of phases. I discovered Andre Norton on my own. And then my best friend, Mindy Gualgren, um, gave me a book of Hugo Award winners, and I loved the Harlan Ellison story, and she said to me, you know, he's the guy who wrote City on the Edge of Forever, which was our favorite Star Trek episode. So, you know, it was kind of back and forth in between. I started reading the genre when I realized these guys who wrote my favorite TV shows were also writing in it. So it was kind of a gradual process to discover what science fiction was. And somewhere along the way, I discovered the magazines and the short stories, and it was all over then at that point. Which single science fiction writer has most influenced your own style? My style? Hmm. That's a toughie. Um, I, I write in so many styles. I would actually probably say, oddly enough, even though people probably can't compare back and forth and see where it comes from, Ursula Le Guin because she takes so many risks in what she does, and she writes in varied styles. Which book by another author do you wish you had written? Left Hand of Darkness. What would be the one question you would ask a science fiction writer? Why do we do this? For what reason do you write science fiction in preference to other classes of literature? Well, I write other categories of literature, but um, my mind seems to go into a um, futuristic bent, a what-happens-if kind of bent. And I think it comes from having been a journalist, where I looked at the world and I said, you know, if this goes on, how are we going, what, what's going to happen to us? Or, you know, I take something that seems really mundane and I go, if we did this in a science fiction universe, in outer space, how different would it be? My brain just tends to go that way. What one aspect of science fiction writing is most difficult to write? 
For me, hard science fiction. Um, I went to Clarion, and at Clarion I was there with Jeff Landis and a couple of guys who were postdocs at MIT, and they kept telling me I didn't know science. And that really made me nervous, and, and so you know, it kind of froze me up on the hard science fiction side of things. I still write it, but I, I you know, have it vetted and vetted and vetted to make sure that I know what I'm doing. Does writing get any easier? Um, yes and no. It, I now know that when it's difficult in the middle, um, I will finish. But at the same time, you have all the expectations and weight of the critics and the readers and the genre itself and your, and your own expectations on top of you. When you start, it's just you alone in a room. And unless you're careful as you go on in the career, you, you drag in all these other people with you. You have to learn how to shut them out of the office so that you can work. Describe your daily working day. Um, I get up late in the day and I putter around for a while because I'm a, the kind of person who wakes up slowly. I read a newspaper. I make sure I'm up on the news of the day. I go for a run usually outside so that I get some outside, you know, some outdoors into my day. And then uh, I go to lunch with Dean and that's about the only time I see people. And then I come back home and I go to work writing and I work until about 11 o'clock at night. And then I'm done, um, and I can either read or watch a little television or see a movie. What's the strangest? What's the strangest thing you've ever done while researching? Hmm, yeah, there's a lot of contestants for that. I would say this. This is actually for one of my mystery stories. Uh, I write mysteries as Chris Nelscott, um, and they are set in the slums of Chicago and. Uh, the strangest thing I've ever done was go into an area where I knew we were in. Dean took me down there in a car, and I knew we were in a lot of danger, but um, I still had to take a few photographs. He got us out of there pretty quickly, but it was um, it was dangerous and scary, and uh, it was uh, near a place where they. It was a church next to a drug dealer's house, and uh, uh, we were being watched as closely as I was watching them. So it was not smart, it was scary, and it get me, got me two books. Do you think science fiction as a genre is different from other genres? Yeah, it is. It's, it's more imaginative, it's harder to write, and it doesn't have a set ending. All the other genres have a set ending. Romance has a happily ever after ending. Mystery, you know how the crime gets resolved, whether or not the criminal goes to jail or not. You know who done it. Um, you know, even the mainstream pretty much has a set ending where you can, you, when you start, you know how the book is going to end. In science fiction, you don't know how the book is going to end. And I think that's both exciting and off-putting, depending on the reader. What do you consider the chief value of science fiction? Entertainment, but I, that's because I love science fiction. I also like the way it puts a, oh, I don't know quite how to say it, it, a new lens on our world. Because all science fiction, even if it's set in the future, is about here and now. And even if it's about aliens, it's about human beings. And I think that gives us a whole new perspective on our world and our life that you can't get from any other kind of fiction. Has science fiction ever disappointed you? Yes. Science fiction started disappointing me greatly in, in the mid-90s when it got so closed-minded that, you know, anything that wasn't pre-approved 
didn't get in, meaning, you know, you could send in a manuscript um, to the book editors and they'd say, oh, James Blish did it in 1950. Well, James Blish's books are out of print, so if you're a new reader coming in, there was no way for the new reader to actually have an access point in the genre. It got very closed for a while. It's opening back up, especially in YA and in actually in the United States, romance has a lot of science fiction. Um, and the younger editors here are beginning to open back up in some of the magazines. So it's opening back up. But for a while there, it was hard for me, the hardcore science fiction reader, to, to understand what some of the people were doing in books. And I got real disappointed for a little while there and started, since I was at that point editor of FNSF, I started yelling about it. And other people started yelling about it and things started to change. Is there still new ground to be covered in science fiction literature? Yeah, because the world is changing all the time. And I think we haven't gone far enough yet in our exploration of what is alien. You know, when you look at how human beings are and how different cultures are from here to Pakistan to Afghanistan to places in Africa to, you know, just the culture in Haiti that they've been talking about since the earthquake, human beings are extremely diverse And aliens written about in science fiction are often not as diverse as human beings are within our cultures or in the past cultures. And I think we need to go farther with our imagination in, in what is alien and what is different and, and the common ground that aliens and humans and humans and humans have. Christine Catherine Rush, thank you very much. You're welcome. So that is Starship Sofa's Oral Delights. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you will, when the time comes, consider purchasing our new novel. This all goes towards keeping the Starship Sofa afloat, the transcriber project. I'll say I'll, each week now I'll start mentioning a little bit more until the book's out. And I haven't, actually haven't mentioned this for a while, but don't forget the Starship Sofa's sanatorium show. This is like the private show for members only. £2.50 a month and you get to hear all sorts of things over there. Until next week, I would just like to say good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Of that procedure Set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one.